right, I'm here. I got my tea. All right. We don't do any particular intros unless you want us to. <laughs> no, it's fine. Really you know, like. we like to dive right in. Okay, let's dive right in. Yeah. So, but I, we wanted to see if there was anything that you maybe wanted to talk about because we certainly have things that we can ask you about as prompts to get rolling here. But um, I don't know. Maybe there was something on your on your mind or on your heart or that you've been considering that you wanna. Yeah. You want to riff on. Yeah, like I know you're knee deep in the curriculum at the moment. We're in like the third quarter. Um, but, I don't, you know, and I know that you know, you're refining the curriculum every time, but I don't know if there's anything that like you've been noodling over aside from that or within that that like you wanted to try to express. Um... You know? Yeah, you know, most of my time is spent thinking about how to enact change, or I'm not even sure enact is the right word, because I'm not sure we have that much agency Mm. in change, but how to facilitate change. Um, And it's been a long process. So way back in the beginning of this 20 years ago, I could see where this was kind of headed. You never know the form it's going to take. And then it's just been this slow slog of like bringing it out, translating it, uh, going around the world, talking to groups of three people in the beginning, um, you know, learning how to teach it, how to practice it. Um, and also how do you, how do you facilitate change? You know, one way of making change in the world is to go out and tell people what they should do, you know, or what they're doing wrong, which is of course highly ineffective. Mm-hmm. Most of my thinking is shaped on the idea that everything we experience and um, do and know comes from nature and is on, based on nature's patterns. So when we look at patterns of change, nature also informs us. And one of the things when you look at nature and you look at patterns of change is that there's a time aspect, which you really don't have control over in a certain way. So, for example, if you want to uh, move to a certain place and grow an orchard you know you plant the seeds it goes in the ground the ground is either good or not good and then it just takes a certain amount of time for trees to grow and you could be very excited about your you know wanting to get your first bottle of wine or whatever it doesn't matter you know and so looking at a project like this where you know you could see oh my god this could change everything you know but you can't really make it happen any faster you just have to show up every day and do the work Mm -hmm. um at this point in this cycle uh where my attention is right now is defining it into a method that has a name basically because um this is a new field it's an idea from early chinese texts and but it's very different than the current field so it's really a new profession and if you look at you know, Chinese writings, there's something about naming something that makes it real. And there's the idea of the rectification of names, the Confucian idea that, you know, most problems in the world or many problems in the world start by naming something incorrectly, you know? So if I say that I'm something I'm not, and then I proceed from that point of view, if I call myself uh, a sinologist, for example, you know, I do translations, but I'm not a sinologist. Sinologist is something else. But if I called myself a sinologist, that would be the beginning of a process that would end poorly. <laughs> mm. You know? 
So actually the naming is really important. And in a way, if you look at the, the Tao Te Ching, for example, that first chapter where it says, you know, the Tao, Tao Ka Tao, Fei Chang Tao, the Tao that can be appreciated as a thing is not the thing. And then Ming, uh, Ming, Ming, Fei Chang Ming, a name that can be spoken is not the name. So in a way, there's something about the naming that moves it from the <clears throat> pre-heavenly world to the post-heavenly world. So it's kind of a matter of expression. And so actually the naming is really important. And so that's why I just got done speaking in a Rotenberg conference in Germany, naming the research method, which was naming uh, classical text-based archaeology and the method, which is now naming nature-based medicine. At the same time, as soon as you name something, you're limited. Mm -hmm. So like in that first chapter of the Tao Te Ching, it says, you know, without names, it's the mother of everything. You know, with names, you see the boundaries, basically. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as there's this kind of, um, you know, problem that when you name things also, then it's a limitation and then it's a thing. So it's, it's you know, it's what are to go live in a cave and not name it or to name it and make a profession that, you know, possibly could be studied and help global health problems, which is our end result, you know, the end goal, then the decision is to kind of name it, even knowing the limitations. Um, but it's tricky. And as soon as you name it, there's going to be new problems, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. As you're talking about this, Ed, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking about the work of Alfred North Whitehead, uh, sort of the the father of the idea of process philosophy in the West, right? Which is super consonant, at least in my understanding of it, which is admittedly very limited, um, with uh, a Taoist orientation to the movements uh, and changes that that express both from the unmanifest to the manifest and back again, right? And so the one of the ways that um, Benita Roy likes to talk about Whitehead's work is this idea of potentiality and actuality, right? Which I th think is another framing of what <clears throat> the Tao Te Ching is speaking of in those verses that you quoted. And the so what I'm hearing for you is that when you take something that exists as a potential and you give it a name, you bind it in a certain way and it becomes actualized, which on the one hand is awesome because if things exist purely as potential, then there's not a lot that we can do with them in the material world. And on the other hand, the concern that I'm hearing, right, is that that binding is somehow going to, um, as it gives form and boundary, it <clears> also <throat> restricts and limits. Mm. The question that I would have though, and one of the things I think about a lot is that, um, I, I totally get and even in many respects uh, resonate with and agree with the notion that like when when we give something a name or put it into language in a particular way, it binds that structure, right? And it makes it into a thing. On the other hand, I think one of the, th the most important understandings that uh, the studying the Tao Te Ching has given to me and sort of it, it's a it also is an unfolding is that everything is constant change and process. So I'm kind of, this is a 
you know, short story long kind of lead into a simple question, but I'm wondering how you feel into uh, the aspect of that, that even though it becomes bound in the actual, right, it's named and thingified, um, that it's still dynamic, right, and vibrant. We, you know, like the, the very notion that there are things rather than processes, I find really questionable, um, even though it often seems that way. And so it, it, it feels like there's space within even the naming of a thing to lean more into the dynamism uh, of, of that aspect of its manifestation. Yeah, I think those, those are really good points. And we have to separate a few things. One is our human consciousness, which has its own inherent faults and problems. You know, like we like to name things and then make that's when I talk about making it real, I'm talking about in our mind in a certain way. If you look at nature, it doesn't have that aspect. So it has movements and you're right. Everything in the universe is in a constant state of change and motion. And even the things that look solid to us or material, they're just in slower motion basically. So the idea of an aging, I think in, is that everything in the universe is constantly moving and changing its orientation. And sometimes that motion slows down enough so that we actually can see it or weigh it, you know, and then we call it form or a thing and we give it a name. But um, the naming refers back more to our consciousness, like our need to make sense of the world. It's not, it doesn't really reflect the world itself. So the world is just passing in and out of form constantly doing its own thing and we're trying to make sense of it and we try we like to freeze it in a certain way by naming it um so we have to make that distinction that a lot of this comes from that are artifacts of human consciousness that don't really reflect nature um and then you have to say but i think also in that data gene you know that first chapter there's another thing um, and it also comes back to the topic of transcendence, which we were talking about, you know, when we first talk, talked about maybe having this. And it's the idea that there's a dimension of the universe that is not of this world in a certain way. And then there's a dimension that is of this world. And if you look at the first chapter in the Tao Te Ching, after those first lines, it says, these two places, the places with names and things, and the other patterns, they come from the same place. They have their own, the same mother, but we call them differently. So I think there's also a way that we can say, well, the imperfect world we live in, you know, um, is an artifact of consciousness, but also it's part of the whole process of nature. It's part of the process of nature that human beings would be made that want to name things, for example, you know. And so, um, yeah, I the thing where it comes down to me is if you if you look at the idea of the Tao, which is really they're talking about the patterns of space time motion in the in the world of human beings, basically how clouds turn and how nature moves. Um, if you are really a Taoist, you might say, uh, "I'm just going to follow those patterns because that's what the Neijing says. That's what the Tao Te Ching says. If you follow this, everything's good. If you don't follow it, you're going to get sick and have problems." On the other hand, we sometimes we intervene, and I think, or like naming something is an intervention. For example, I'm going to take this and name it. You know, 
And then I think what's important is your motivation, maybe, or how you see the framework of naming. Like, for example, you could name something to try and own it, Mm. you know, or like um, commodify it or something like that. But when we name, if we do something like that, or even if we intervene on a patient, you could say, well, they're sick and, but their illness is just a pattern of the Tao. So let's not intervene because we're Taoists. And so we're going to let you have COVID, for example. Then it's really the, um, the idea of why we intervene. So if, if you intervene to uh, free the expression of the Tao in the world you see, and, and restore it, then that's, I think that's one point of view. If you name something like a system with the idea that you could bring these ideas out and it could actually increase the way we understand the Tao and the participation with that experience, that's one idea. Um, so if we're working with needles in a person's body, something's stuck, and it is actually the Tao, that movement. And when we intervene, it's not Taoist, but we're intervening in service of allowing that process to restore again. So it's a bit tricky, I would say. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I think, Lucas, you have. Oh, no, I'm I'm just thinking um, a lot in the practical sense. Do you know what I mean? So, like, I appreciate, um, I appreciate wanting to name it for the pure fact of, like, when patients come to you and ask you, what do you do? What style do you do? And all these things, like, who have some little bit of education about what acupuncture is and they or they had some experience with acupuncture and they had a certain style or something like that and they want to know what you do it's <laughs> it's great to like give them if you can i'm not there yet but if you can give them the elevator pitch on nature-based aging medicine <laughs> then great but otherwise it's you know it's it's hard to to sum up what exactly you know, you're trying to do in this style? Um, yes and no, I'd say. It's actually boils down to some pretty basic, uh, you know, principles. Uh, I would say before that, um, what was I going to say? Oh, another reason to name it is to be honest, because if you look at something like the Neijing text, it's so dense and can be seen in so many ways. If you ever say, like, you're practicing aging medicine or teaching it, it's actually not honest because there's a thousand other ways to look at it. Mm-hmm. Know, that, that's, that's the nature of a Jing text. So it's just, it's kind of more honest. Um, actually, <laughs> you know, I say with this medicine, it's really interesting because on one level, you can explain it to a, th- a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. And in another level, it's so um, complicated, you need to be talking to a cosmologist, and even then you're confused, you know. Mm. So the basic ideas are so simple that, um, you know, everything in our cosmos is an expression of motion. Mm -hmm. And every time there's motion, there's change. So it's all about change and motion. And um, that it really boils down to this idea of breath motion. So if you were to um, magically be able to be transported into the cosmos before anything appeared, before the Big Bang came or whatever, and it was just blackness, whatever that was. And then <clears throat> then what would be the first thing would happen? Well, one idea is it could just be still. It could be blackness. But somehow, for some reason, 
it starts to move. We don't really know why, uh, but it just starts to move. And it could move in a variety of ways. It could move like in a straight line. It could move linearly. It could move in a chaotic way. But what we see is actually, or what nature tells us, I should say, is that it actually starts to rock. And it rocks, it goes out, and it comes back. And it moves out from a root and goes out to an expression, and it comes back to the root. And it's just kind of rocking. And that that rocking kind of gets bigger, and we call that rocking breath, really. And so, uh, or in Chinese, it's called yin yang, basically. So that rocking breath is is moving, and it moves in in and out of different dimensional conformations. It'll move into different ways of being that express differently, um, which is a very interesting finding from this research about the different dimensional spaces of this rocking of the breath. And most of this rocking breath is intangible to us, so we don't see it at all. And even if we look from modern science, we think, you know, 4 or 5% of the universe is actually tangible to us and the rest is invisible. So it's also in the Neijing this idea that most of these things are intangible. But in very special cases, they will slow down enough to be seen. And they're still moving. Mm-hmm. You know, my computer that I'm looking at is still moving. I just don't see it. Uh, it's just moving slowly, you know. Um, then we call it form. And so, um, and that the form is based on the patterns of rocking motion. So when you look at a form, it directly reflects the unseen patterns that were there when it was being formed. And then basically health and illness, you know, um, if you look at, uh, from this point of view, every illness that's ever been in, in human experience, all, they all have at their root a primary impairment of this rocking motion. And every therapy that's ever been or ever will be somehow fixes that rocking motion. Mm. And, and all the rocking motions in the universe are moving together. So they influence each other. So now it gets a little complicated, but the original idea is kind of simple. Perhaps. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> simple, not necessarily uh, <clears throat> easy. If, if you look mm. at if you look at uh, the descriptions in early China or in the Neijing, what gives them power is their everything is derived from one thing, mm. you know, mm. and that that means it's an ex, it's a universal explanation of all things. Yeah, Ed, I'm hoping that you can clarify something for us. Yes, when, when you talk about dimensionality or dimensional shifting, how how do you understand that? What does that mean to you from this orientation? So that's a great question. And how did we come to understand this from these ancient writings? And it mm-hmm. was, it was understanding that they're talking about different levels, the level of the stars, the level of the planets, uh, the level of heaven and earth human being where we live, the plant, the world underneath the earth is another way. And they all have different patterns and, they uh, talk about them differently by using numbers. So when you see numbers in early Chinese texts, they're telling you, is it in a binary state of space-time motion or a, you know, a tertiary state you know, or a fifth-level state? Um, one, one, one way you might be able to think about it is in the 
um, idea of can quantum physics of orbitals or molecular theory. So, you know, you have a proton and a neutron, and then you have these electrons. And they, if you put more energy into the system, they shift into another state um, in a quantum step. And then if you look at the, you know, generated images of those states, they look differently. And so they're going to express a different kind of reality. Even though they come from the same source, it's just whether there's more organizational order in them or less. And so, for example, if you look out in the heavens, you know, you see things turning in circles and spirals. That's the basic motion. That's a fifth level uh, motion in the aging, meaning um, there's a circle with four um you know, aspects to it, the four directions and a center axis. So they call that the fifth level motion. So when they look at the stars and they see them turning around the pole star, they call that wuxing or the five circulations. When they look at the earth and we don't see things turning in circles, but we see things opening and closing in waves, then we're going to give it another dimensional um, order. Uh, so it's the idea, and, and the forms themselves are secondary. Like forms, if, if things are slow enough, forms will form around the patterns that are there. Um, but it's the motions, the resonant motions, and the breathing states that are actually primary. So thank you. That's a, a great clarification. I'm still um, wondering, in terms of the word choice dimension, right, what, you know, so I'm, in this case, my understanding of that word comes from a Western physical and mathematical context, right? And mm -hmm. so I'm a little bit trying to bridge the gap between that understanding and what that means in this, because I definitely hear the like the valence orbital relationship of like we're in a state of different organization. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm continuing to be curious about dimension as the choice to describe those different levels of organization. So maybe think about when you're developing as an embryo, you know, um, we use this example a lot. So when an egg is fertilized, it's coming through the fallopian tube and it starts its life in a binary dimension. It's called uh, the blastocyst. That means when the fertilized egg starts, first starts to develop, it, it develops a left side and a right side, and then an upside and a downside. And it's, it's, it's cleaving in a binary way, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. Now, that's still a human being at an early stage. But if you could transport, you know, like Star Trek-wise, go into that world, it would be a world where everything is defined in binary terms. And it would be a very strange world. So we call it a dimension in a certain way. Um, because if you live there, like words wouldn't make any sense. You know, all the ways we're talking wouldn't make any sense. Um, it's a binary world. <clears throat> and then when you, when the egg implants into the uterine lining of the mother's womb, it turns into a three-level disc, a germ disc, which means there's something in the back, there's something in the front. And then things all developed in the middle of that. Now, all of a sudden, that's a whole different world where there's differentiation and things growing. And if you were able to be in there, it would be a completely different world. It would still be unlike our world. Then you're born. 
your body forms. And now we're out here having a podcast. This is a completely different world. So the idea about dimensions is that when space-time shifts, it's just the complete experience of the space. It's, it, it shifts how things are formed. It shifts how you would experience it. Um, and that's why we call it, at least that's why I call it dimensions. Um, and our full life is an expression of all those things overlaid. So Chinese medicine, for example, we have the extraordinary vessel systems, which is the idea of those energy cleavages that happen when you were an embryo. It's still in my body, but I don't see it. That's why it's called miraculous or extraordinary because they're there, but I don't see it. It means it comes from a different world, a different dimension. Does that make sense? It, it definitely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like your use of dimension is to describe and define uh, a particular state realm world that has a set of rules, parameters, organizational structure that is, uh, it's discrete from these other aspects, but at the same time, there are ways in which that they interact. Does that seem reasonable? Right. So the whole, the whole system is envisioned as a resonance system, basically. Mm. And form is resonant and non-form is resonant. It, it vibrates, basically. And it's a tensegrity system, meaning when one part of the system vibrates, all other parts are affected, in, you know, right away. Um, and that system of resonance goes through different dimensions of order, and it moves in and out of material state, basically. And if we, if we take those parameters, we can pretty much define any location in space in the universe, you know, what dimensional order is it primarily expressing? And is it what degree of materiality is it in? Something like that. Where we, where we fall down, again, it goes back to our limitations of human perception. You know, we're really like the blind man feeling the elephant. If you go back to that Chinese term, xiang, which means the energetic trace around which form is made, if you remember that from an aging, mm-hmm. it's really the picture of an elephant. And you think, well, could they be talking about that story of the four blind men that are feeling the elephant? Well, actually, that story is really old. So it actually could be that story. Mm-hmm. But it's the way our consciousness is that we're always looking at the things and thinking that they're the world when they're just the afterthought. That's not really where things are happening. And we're only looking in one dimension. You know, like I'm looking at you guys on the podcast and we think this is the reality. But um, the reality is, is that the part we see is only an afterthought. And what's really happening is in this 96% of the universe, it's unseen. And it has its own rules and patterns and it's moving in and out of different forms. And they're all resonating together. And whatever you experience at a certain place is a composite of all those resonant dimensions together. So, for example... If we look at the earth and we see waves, we go to the ocean, we see waves, not circles. The primary dimension we're seeing is this kind of wave dimension um, named by the numbers six and 12 in the early texts. But it doesn't mean that the patterns of the stars are still not here. They're also resonating within that dimension, but it's just not the primary dimension. So if you want to kind of sum, 
sum up the difference between early Chinese thinking and modern thinking, it really can be summed up by um, an addiction to looking at patterns which of things, which is the Western way, and an addiction to looking at uh, patterns, which is the Chinese way. Maybe addiction is not the right word, but a focus on patterns versus mm-hmm. form. So, you know, in, in Western medicine or Western science, if you want to confuse your doctor or a scientist, just have something that can't be seen. Mm-hmm. You know, that just brings the whole system to a standstill. If you don't have something on x-ray or something on a lab test, you know, basically the whole system grinds to a halt. Yeah. But that's just the end result. Yeah. I think it's a, a important and really interesting distinction to note that um, these pre-modern modes of thought often are oriented in a contextual processual relational set of dynamics uh, and that modern modes of thought are oriented towards things in space where forces act on them. Right. And so I, I, a little bit, I, I want to inquire into whether or not you think it's so much a artifact of human consciousness that we perceive things that way or more is it an artifact of the current era that we're in which has reoriented to the relationship to reality in what is essentially um you know again things in space it's a nominative orientation to reality so it it linguistically and paradigmatically um, binds things in a different way even than naming them because it really does bind them to be like this I'm putting my hands on the table that's in front of me and like <clears throat> this table it ends here right but even western science not even the cutting edge of western science but science will tell us that is total nonsense <laughs> that's not how things work at all mm-hmm. you know like th- this idea of where the boundary is right is again like you've been saying Ed things are moving some of them move slower that's what we see we feel as solid but we know that that's still mostly empty space quote empty space right so i'm just you know again short story long uh curious to hear your thoughts on how much of this is the nature of human consciousness so to speak which not that i presume to know that um what that is but or how much of it is the current orientation of consciousness to reality that then gives rise to this kind of yeah, artifact. I think that there's two parts to that that story, and one is about human consciousness. So, just neurobiologically, you know, I'm looking at you right now, you know, you and Lucas, and I think I'm seeing you, but I'm not actually. What happens is that there's a resonance that comes through my screen. It hits my photoreceptors. It goes into my occipital cortex. And then it gets filtered by the story I made about what's true and like who you are. So like, I don't get to see everything, but the story in my neurons actually modifies how I see you. Like I know you're a practitioner. I know you're Taryn and Lucas. That actually modifies how I see you. And what I'm seeing is actually an image in my brain that's constructed by all of those things. So like, I'm not seeing the way the world is. I'm seeing a very small fraction part that's in the visual spectrum that's modified by my story and so forth. There's just no way that we're perceiving things directly. Um, But the other problem is 
you know, the change that's happened since the industrial and scientific revolutions in the 16th century onward, basically. Um, until that point, we look backwards for knowledge. So we look back to Greece and, you know, other, other um, writers and so forth. The success of those periods with the tools that they made made us shift that orientation to start looking forward and we discarded the past. So actually what was interesting was coming, not what was had been. And so what that meant, and also there was a change in our relationship to nature. So all of a sudden we could manage nature and it became a commodity and so forth. Um, and if you look at, for example, traditional cultures versus modern cultures and the way they perceive they perceive in a much different way if you want to generalize, you know, from my experience. And number one, they know that their entire subsistence comes from nature. So this is something we've kind of lost. But they're also um, navigating ways of knowledge in a different way. So, I mean, I, I was an exchange student on the, the Zuni reservation when I was a high school student and watched this a bit. But there's a way if you're dependent on the seasons or you're hunting in a hunting group or something like that, that you're navigating different ways of knowing. Um, and some of them are more about the intuitive body where you're getting a lot of information. and You can't really say where it came from, but you kind of know it and you cultivate it. But also in traditional uh, cultures, I think there's more of this awareness that the universe is multidimensional. And so that they are open to that idea. So if you look at the processes of shamanism, for example, that's very much a multidimensional awareness where we don't have that. So, you know, I think we, we think we're, we're probably the most advanced people that ever, have ever been at this time. I think you can make a good case we're probably the dumbest people that have ever been. And that's because we've forgotten, like, where our food comes from mm -hmm. and, what you know, where everything arises from. So I would say it's a mix of those two things. I don't know if that makes sense. And, mm -hmm. you know, also I would say the shift from looking at things and objects and social media and your screens to the idea that you're living in a multidimensional resonance scape of which only a fraction is visible to you or appreciable, that's not a step that you do overnight, especially if you're a Westerner. It's something you have to kind of contemplate for a long time to get it. Or, for example, you can use hallucinogens, mm. you know? And one of the benefits of hallucinogens is that for a moment in time, you know the universe, there's more to the universe than what you thought there was. You know, it has that aspect. And now we're seeing them being used more and more in psychiatric therapy the idea of erasing the story that you carry through which you perceive the world, you know, that benefit. But if you want to live fully in the, the world, whether you use hallucinogens or not, however you do that, you have to come to grips with what you see as a small fraction, that everything is happening behind the scenes, and you're, we're living in a multidimensional universe. Every other, if you don't live in that world, all, all the rest of your explanations are limited. If you try and describe the world from the point of view of facts and things, you know, things that you can see, you're never going to quite get to the way the universe is. 
it sounds like um, our goal as practitioners and hopefully as humans, but is like trying to striving to be like Neo in the Matrix. You know, <laughs> which one was he? I can't remember that. I don't watch he's it. the main character. He's oh. the guy who, like, you know, uh, he sees the Matrix. You know, is he the Keanu Reeves, Reeves guy? Yeah, or... yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, he doesn't. He sees the boundaries, but they don't. They're not limitations. You know, and I, yeah. I wonder if you know if we can actually not. I mean, not necessarily in that way, but maybe if we can actually get to a point where we cultivate enough to be able to, you know, at least identify or understand the boundaries well enough, the dimensions, and use that to help people. Do you know, I feel, because I feel like that's sort of where we're going with some of these teachings, you know, you're, oh, yeah. um, you're training your intuition, which is something that is really, really difficult, given, you know, uh, your, your mind being, um, um, trained in in a, in a modern world and then you know really changing in your your sense of perception your sense of touch to go beyond the field of just tactile touch but like um you know subtle energies and like the the vibration be uh, between matter you know um and then but i think it sounds like to to really affect change and to affect things on a multi-dimensional level it almost sounds like you have to transcend that in some in some way which i i'm not entirely sure how to do like if it's a state of mind is it a non-state of mind <laughs> you know it's a state of non-mind exactly you know, in terms of, in terms of intuition i'd say actually it's easier than you think yeah okay because it's actually if you talk to any child under the age of three that's how they're operating you mm. look at my cat, that's how she's operating. You know, mm. um, she's, they're taking in a lot of information. They're seeing things, not just in terms of this very narrow thing. And then, and then we get talked out of it. You know, basically when that's part of growing up is in West, Western cultures, you, you get talked out of it by the prevailing story. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually, you have a big capacity to do this already and it's untapped mostly. So, you know, we teach this and, basically requires someone with a doctor title or something to tell you it's important Mm. and then lead you through a few things and you start to tap back in. Um, That's actually not too hard. Lucas, remember Vicki McCabe's coming to our senses, right? Which the first Mm. third or half of that book is actually about kind of the, the structural um, dynamics and processes by which what Ed's talking about this kind of like we're taking in way more than our conscious awareness allows us to know and mm-hmm. there's ways where we're kind of evolved and structured for that information and those experiences to get processed in a particular way mm-hmm. um, so it's I, and that's very that's very old that's yes very, it's mm-hmm. yeah and so it's a matter of one getting out of the way right and the other I think too when we're talking about intuition in a um, a skills-based orientation is that we also have to like, there is work that we have to do. We have to do the cognitive work and do the practical work, cultivate the palpation skills, right. As their own sort of disciplines. And then we have to let go of being mm. focused and fixated on that and allow that we have 
altered some of those structures to, to work in slightly different ways, right? We've developed these skills and sensitivities mm -hmm. and then, you know, listen, be present. And, you know, a lot of this goes to the idea that there's many ways of knowing and that our job as human beings is not to promote one way, mm. but to be good at all the ways. Like every way of knowing has its pro and its con. You know, double blind studies have their good points and their bad points. Mm -hmm. Intuition has its good points and its bad points. What's the bad point? The intuition comes through my body mind, which is a filter, which means it's going to change everything. So it's, it's more that we want to cultivate different ways of knowing and get good at them. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think and the other part is that we, that the terms imagination and intuition are pejorative terms. Mm. They mean you're not, uh, I mean, for a lot of people, like it's, if you went to your doctor and he said, I'm not going to order a test, I'm going to use my intuition. And most of the other doctors would laugh at them, you know. Okay. Um, so, or if I, like I had a dream and I imagined that the patient's problem was this, you know, you would be laughed out of the room, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So because we associate imagination with children and artists, which are kind of like children, you know, in, in our culture, <laughs> we see them that way. And so we have to rehabilitate these terms and then also get good at them. What's the downside to talking about imagination and intuition? Well, a bunch of practitioners who don't know the technical aspects of medicine, but just come in and have a weekend training and then intuit what's wrong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so like in the aging medicine, there's like a lot of technical information and you really want to know that first. You want to be, have that ability. And then you want to add these different ways. And they're also a skill, like how you use your intuition that's a skill. You have mm. to use it to practice it. So, and you know, it's I think fascinating Ed, about that is that while you, if you were a physician or a certain kind of scientist, you might be laughed at if you said, "Hey, uh, I'm going to intuit this," or it came in a dream. When we look at the history of uh, some of the greatest breakthroughs in medicine and science, there's a huge preponderance of people who actually did intuit and dream those things, right? Like mm -hmm. Jeffrey Kripal's work in The Flip is a good sort of modern example of collating a lot of those kinds of things where folks that were entirely oriented in a Western materialistic paradigm had some kind of truly consciousness expanding experience that they were not looking for, that it basically f was the forcing function for them to open up to other ways of knowing, right? And then find ways of integrating these different modes of understanding and knowledge. So it's like um, <clears throat> when you were born, you should have been given a manual, you know, on how to be human. Mm -hmm. And there, in that manual, there should be a chapter like there's, you don't see the world perfectly, but there's a bunch of ways of knowing it. And here's the good and bad points of all of them. And here's how you use them all in a good way, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I think there's also a myth that, you know, we know things through our reason. You know, we like to think we know mm -hmm. things through our reason. I think what we know through our reason is actually very limited. Um, I think actually how we know things is through our circulation. So, for example, um, if I go on a date with someone and we get along for a while, and then I think, well, maybe I should ask this person to marry me. 
Am I going to use my reason for that? Maybe I'll make a list of pros and cons. That's not how I'm going to decide. I'm going to go inside my body, mind, and feel how my circulation feels when I think about that idea. Mm. And if the, circu- if the circulation goes, hmm, yes, then I'm going to usually go in that direction. That's how we choose our friends. That's how we make decisions. If I think about, you know, I'm dyslexic, so I think in a funny way. But when I was looking at the Neijing, just translating tons of lines that I didn't understand, and I was waiting for a feeling in my body that everything started to move. And it didn't start to move until I started to realize the book was all about these patterns of motion. And there was this big aha. And the aha was, oh, now my circulation's moving. So that's actually how I know if I'm in the kind of the right place. So we love the circulations that nature, the universe is based on circulation. That's how we make our day-to-day decisions. Even if you're with a patient, maybe they come in and all their findings look good, but there's something in the way your circulation is not moving that tells you something's not right. And so maybe if you're listening to that, you stop and you look into it further, you know, or maybe it looks terrible but your circulation feels pretty good. You're still going to order the test, but you probably don't think it's a big deal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, that's a whole different way of thinking that you are living in a multidimensional universe, most of which is intangible to you. It's all based on circulation and change and transformation. Everything you know is based on those patterns. Um, and then even further, the idea of free will you know, that doesn't hold up really in the system either. Um, and because why you do something is related to the summation of circulation resonance patterns at that time, you know, why someone gets elected president or not, for example, it's not because of them. It's because there's a certain pattern in place that where that's the perfect fit. Why does COVID land in a person? It's not because COVID went and attacked the person it's because there's a variety of things that make it so that when COVID lands on the person, it takes off. So it's like, so that means this way of thinking has many levels to it, but it means a lot of ways we understand the world, they just don't hold up on, under a closer inspection. You know, it's like, it's like, a, I don't know, like a play with people in it who don't really understand the plot. And they think it's all about the things that are on the stage and it really has nothing to do with those things. It's a big shift. Mm-hmm. It's great though. I would say this, the multi-dimensional resonance scape, you know, guided by transcendent illumination, you know, that idea is a much more beautiful um, story to live in. And also if we look at our patient's bodies and instead of seeing phlegm or cholesterol problems, we see resonance patterns that are resonating with the universe along these ideas. That's a much more beautiful clinical experience too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ed, since you brought it up, will you talk about the relationship between transcendent illumination and this kind of dimensional shifting movement and order um how what's your under your current understanding of that of transcendence we can start there sure um so 
Yeah. In the in the naging descriptions, the universe is described about patterns that have order. For example, um, spring turns into summer, summer turns into fall. Or if we even go into the invisible universe, then we can talk about patterns of motion moving through different um, dimensional spaces. And one of the qualities about all those things, what is it about that world um, that unites it is that it can be measured in a certain way or that it has different um, states of order, you know, that it's passing through. And, but what the Neijing says is that if you want to make a universe, you also need this transcendent aspect that woven into this universe, the space-time universe is this transcendent aspect. What does transcendent mean? It's one of those words that we use. We don't really understand it usually, but it means kind of extending beyond the ordinary. And it also means something you can't measure. It's it's something that doesn't work according to the normal uh, rules of th- these things. <clears throat> and that that would seem to be required to make the organized world, that somehow the organized world is has the breath patterns as its force, as its motion, but there's another aspect that guides its expression so that it all comes out in an organized way. And that, that was a tr- transcendent dimension. Um, it has this special illumination called Shen, this idea, um, which means, and the best definition for Shen is um, that uh, aspects of the world of yin and yang, of that breath motion, yin yang butsa wei shen, aspects of the breath motion moving around the universe, there's a dimension of that that you cannot butsa, you cannot measure it and call this shen. And then, and then it says shen yang wu feng wei shen, when um, manifestations of this dimension on the world that don't have a direction, meaning they're in a different dimension, call them sacred. So we have this idea that there's a dimension of space-time that's really transcendent. You can't measure it, but when you see it, it's called sacred. So then we have this idea of hierophanies, hierophanies, which means the revealing of the sacred in space in different ways. And what does this transcendent aspect do? It, this transcendent illumination, it says in the heavens, it makes the wind, in the earth, it makes the, the plants and the trees. Um, and so there's an idea that the breath motion is moving, but it's forming, all the breath motions are forming into coherent patterns around a pattern of light or a special transcendent form of illumination what happens in that transcendent illumination is the rules of the way the world just breaks down. It somehow guides everything. So we might see the same thing inside a star when the two forces of um, the dust gathering and the forces moving out equal, and all of a sudden the molecular bonds change and the world's not the same and things are turning into different things is a kind of transcendent idea. Um, Two really interesting things about uh, the transcendent illumination that guides the expression of all things. Um, And by the way, you have that in your body. It arises in your heart and moves through your blood. And acupuncture was originally the surgery that 
you know, was there to um, help the circulation of that light. Um, the really interesting things about both the breath pattern moving through different dimensions and the light is that it's not a bunch of different lights and it's not a bunch of different breaths, but it's one breath. That means if we talk about, if we went back to the beginning of the universe and saw it beginning to rock and then it's moving through all these dimensions, that's actually one breath in different forms rather than a bunch of different ones. And what that means is that when I'm looking at you, Taryn, and you, Lucas, you know, we look as, as separate people, that's a mistake of my consciousness, and that we're actually emanations of the same fabric, you know, which is kind of incredible. And it, it gives you a whole different relationship to the world because if you're not doing well, I'm not doing well, basically. You know, so we have, we're all related on a very intimate way. And it's the same thing about this tr transcendent aspect of illumination, which is also the basis for, you know, spiritual and religious experiences. So in the Neijing, we would say that that's not a religious thing. It comes from nature, that transcendent illumination is part of nature. And th but that transcendent illumination is the same in all things. That means that the light that flows through my heart that organizes my body is the same that created the tree. And it's the same that created the wind. And it's the same that created Terran's, organizes Terran's body and Lucas's body. And so it's just, it's such a different way of looking at things. And all of a sudden we're connected with things in a, in a much different way. Of course, this is also repeated in religious and spiritual teachings and, you know, in, tra in traditional cultures and all those, thing, those things. Um, but it really, and this goes to a deeper thing about stories, you know, that when the, the real, the, a big way to make change, if we go back to the very beginning, we started talking about how to make change. And one is to base it on nature. Another is when you're trying to change things, don't forget about the details in a certain way and change the story. So I can tell you a story about how all the cells in your body were formed inside a star, inside the cosmos, and all the water you drink today comes from, you know, outer space. And that when illuminated things arise in the cosmos, organized life starts to turn around them. Those things are all scientifically true. You know, if we told that story differently, then everything else changes, like a, a multitude of things change all by themselves. So it's much more efficient to change the story. And imagine what it would be like if we told that story to children when they arrive in the world, you know, and then we just waited one generation and let all, everybody else die off. The world would be completely different, you know? So there's the details in this, but the stories and the ways of seeing, and, and they're much more powerful, I think. Ed, I'm curious if you'll talk a little bit more about the distinction that I just heard you make and that I've heard you make before about um, that the Neijing speaks to these kinds of experiences that often are found within religious and spiritual traditions as natural phenomenon. It sounds to me, and maybe I'm not understanding like um, a little bit, you're saying that those things are divergent that's not my experience. So I'm, I'm curious to understand more about what that distinction you're making is. So, you know, for as people, 
we we are story making creatures. You know, when we come out into the world, we look around, we try and get the gist of things, and then we make a story. We need stories to survive and so forth, make sense of things. If you um, if you look at the idea that the transcendent aspect of life, which the spiritual life or the religious life is based on, is part of the fabric of nature. Um, and then if you look at the different religious traditions like Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, whatever, and you see them as different cultural stories about the experience of transcendence, that's one thing. You know, then it becomes a beautiful thing where we share um, a communion in transcendence. But if you go to this country, they have a very beautiful story of it. And you go to this story, country, they have a beautiful story of it. Of course, there's people that feel that way. But most people, for example, if you're, in, if, if you're talking to, a, you know, um, a serious Christian, for example, they might say, this is not about nature. This is about Jesus, you know. So then it becomes something different where, for example, I'm defending my story against your story. So if you want to count up the amount of deaths in the human history related to people fighting about their stories about religion, you know, it would be overwhelming. Um, because they don't make, the, there's not this step where you say, oh, this is just a story about the way the universe is but it's about Jesus or somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my story, if you don't believe in my story, you know, then we're going to have a, like a, a coming to reckoning about it. Um, but if you saw it, if you change the story in a way and saw that it's about nature, I always say that in aging times, if you went to the university and you wanted to study religion, you would study it in the natural science department. There would not be a theology department. You know, that's the, that's the difference. There's plenty of people in the world who understand that. I'm not the only one here. Uh, But there's plenty of people who don't understand it, too. The other uh, sort of like detail-oriented question that I'm curious about, since we have you here to ask these questions (laughs) of, um, is when you talk about not being able to measure uh, transcendent illumination, on the one hand, that makes complete sense to me, like, on the other hand, I'm wondering if you have more to say about how measure is used in that context, because I'm thinking about other kinds of um, movements and patterns that are perceivable, but maybe not readily measurable. Um, and just kind of curious about that, that spectrum, and if you have thoughts on that. I mean, I do. I'm... I'm not a physicist, so I always get into a little trouble. Don't want to extend myself, but you know what? This is speculative. When I when I read it, a sentence in Chinese like "there's an aspect of yin yang breath, space time that doesn't can't measure it," call that Shen. What I think about is Einstein, basically, and I think about the physics of what happens to things when they approach the speed of light. And I think about that equation, not to get too pop physics on you, but E equals MC squared. So there's things that we call energy. We would call those intangible patterns. And there's things we call matter, and they are tangible patterns. And they are connected by the square of the speed of light, meaning that when you get into this state, 
all the, the things change, the things we take for granted, they loosen and it's a different kind of dimension. Now, not being a physicist, I don't know if those comparisons are justified. Maybe it's just a nice way of thinking. But I, and it's also if you look back in the star, for example, you know, what's happening in a, in a star is that all the bonds of the molecules are loosening. And all of a sudden, it's not just hydrogen, but now it's helium. And there's a space in between those where kind of the, the bonds that hold the world as we know it together go away for a moment and it becomes something else. And so it's a different kind of, kind of state. Um, that's how I think about it. And uh, whether it's <laughs> true or not, I don't know, but it makes sense to me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, what's, re- what's remarkable about this in terms of being a healthcare provider is if you take the idea of religion or spirituality and it's based on illumination, well, we're actually going to look at a person's body and saying, where does that illumination travel and where is it not traveling? And what tissue is it getting into and which tissue is it not getting into? And I'm going to fix that today mm-hmm. or work on it today. And that's my goal. That's kind of, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> I, th- I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it does sound crazy in one respect, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's where I wish medicine would be in general. You know? I, I mean, crazy in a good way, not crazy yeah, yeah, like yeah. you'd say. For sure. But you know, the Nature's point of view is, we yeah, have there's lots of things about pulse taking and like how to you know do diagnosis, but actually the whole thing boils down to this, and it's is this illumination flowing around your body? And if it's not, then the needles are a way to irrigate that into tissue. So, for example, this has led to my, the, you know, the th- theory of uh, tumor growth that comes from this, which is the world is constantly moving and transforming. In the body, it's done with order. So cancer is not a problem of invasion or aggression. It's a problem of coherence. Mm-hmm. And when a certain area of the body falls out of that circulation and the coherence in the Neijing is in the level of transcendent illumination and it flows through the blood, it rises in your heart, it flows through the blood. And so the idea of the tumor is that it's tissue that's still moving and transforming because that's the nature of the universe. It just keeps doing it, but now it doesn't, it's offline, doesn't have coherence. And so the treatment then becomes to send blood back into the tumor mm. and to normalize the circulation, which is opposite of, uh, you know, what we think in Western medicine sometimes block the blood flow. You know, I've been working and I've been working with this in a while. And I can tell you, I tried to use these ideas slowly in the beginning. It was a little nerve wracking. Mm. If you have a very aggressive looking tumor and then you're going to send blood back into it. And the concern is like, it's going to take off. And so in in the beginning, I was only working on people who had maybe four to six weeks to live and they were willing to try it and nothing else had worked. And here's what I can report back. You know, when you send blood, normal blood back into a tumor, it can swell for a period, like a week Mm -hmm. as new blood. And then, but it never just takes off. Mm. You know, I can say that with some certainty now. It's all based on these basic ideas, though. Do you treat or do you think of fibroids in the opposite way then? 
meaning that there's a sort of rogue circulation um, and you're trying to divert it from there? I'm curious because I'm, I'm, fibroids are a pretty uh, tough thing for me. I'm, I'm not sure I understand completely, you know, the dynamic of that tissue. So basically, yeah, I'll, you know, boiling down aging medicine, every problem is a problem of breath and circulation. And um, they fall under two main categories. And one is the category of imbalances, which means I'm just kind of away this way. And those are state dependent, meaning, you know, I don't like hot weather and I get a rash, but then when I leave the hot weather, it goes away. And then the other category is all um, fixed pattern illnesses, which means uh, something's occurred, which blocks the breathing of the body. Mm-hmm. And it's and then it gives rise to things like fibroids and tumors and whatever. Um, <clears throat> so in the case of fibroids, it's always about, you know, finding the blockage to that pattern. It's basically the same approach to every illness. There's sophisticated ways of finding it. Um, and there's only seven real causes for those fixed pattern illnesses as, as far as we can see. You know, you had them in your family line. Something happened to you in the womb. Um, a guest host illness where something comes into you that's not of you. You know, trauma, emotional illnesses, what you eat, and toxins. Mm. So we're just basically when we see something like fibroids, we're going to be looking for a blockage and following this kind of um, thinking. The problem is that the if you think about the body as a breathing system, what we call a biotensegrity, the initiating problem can be very far away from where the fibroids are. Mm-hmm. So it moves through that system and can express it somewhere else. Do you attribute um, that tissue to a certain directional quality um you know like sinews to the east and vessels right. to the, the so south. if we if we if we look at um you know if this is we're getting to what you know this aging nature-based medicine is and it's a whole approach and mm-hmm. um so we divide the body into directional tissue planes meaning that different groups of tissues express different aspects of breath motion opening closing and so forth And so when we see an illness like fibroids, it's going to first express to us in a direction, which we call the direction of presentation, what's clear and obvious. And it's going to exist in certain um, tissue planes, strict directional tissue planes. So for example, fibroids, what's the directional tissue plane? It actually has two. So the uterus itself is deeply embedded in the northern direction of a woman's body. It's part of the whole kidney axis. Um, It's the root of the body of a woman's body. The root is the northern direction. But then when we look at fibroids, we see them as a growth in the muscular wall. And that's part of the connective tissue body. So we're actually going to assign that two directions, two two directions of breath that's impaired. Mm. Um, That's called the direction of presentation. And we're going to build up something called the breath chart. You know, like how is this illness... How is it breathing in the person's body and how are we going to fix it? So we start filling in problems where we see breath not moving. But something could have lodged in that woman's body somewhere else and caused the system to breathe differently such that the fibroids arose at a different location. That's actually very common. And where the illness arises at the inflection point of the illness, 
it's actually silent. So there's a variety of ways that we go about trying to find that kind of tissue and do tissue-based surgery to, to restore it. That makes sense. I mean, to me. <laughs> we just, you just got a master's class in, in five minutes. But <laughs> I mean, it, what's what's powerful about this is if, again, if you start the idea that the universe is one thing, which is motion, and particularly rocking motion, then every other thing we're going to say about the universe derives from that fact. That means that there should be nothing in the universe that does not fit that pattern. Mm-hmm. It means it's a universal description of the cosmos. If you then build a medicine based on that fact, then it should be a universal pattern of medicine. That means there should be no illness that comes to your clinic that you can't understand through this lens and approach and on very simple ideas. So, and in medicine, we're often drowning in complexity. You know, I remember being a medical resident and they'd say, go down and see this person in the ER. And that was back in the days where there was charts. And often like you'd walk in and there'd be like six volumes of charts for this person who'd been in the ER like 47 times. And you had to summarize the problems. And so when you walk into, or if you, if you deal with any complicated illness, there's going to be a long history and things that have been tried. And when you're looking at complexity, you don't want a system to describe it with more complexity. You really want something that's very, that takes it all and simplifies it. So if I go to the hospital and treat a patient I'll walk in. Usually the patient has a lot of complex ideas. The family's concerned about a bunch of things. The doctors have their own story, which is complicated. And my job is to listen to that and then kind of forget it and go to the patient and go, the universe is basically a breath motion. And the breath motion moves in and out of form. One of those forms is a human body. I'm looking at that person moving in that breath motion in this resonance scape what's wrong and why is it not breathing and what can I do to make it breathe again? That's it. Mm -hmm. Just that easy. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's easy and hard. It's hard because where the illnesses set up are often hidden and it takes some time to find them. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it's easy in terms of the approach. You know, the, the thing about this aging medicine is here's the secret. Um, we basically do the same thing for every illness, mm. whether you have schizophrenia mm-hmm. or pneumonia or COVID or cancer. Uh, we're going to treat those differently. They have different implications, but the basic idea is the same. The universe is a breath. The body's a breath formed on that. You know, if it's breathing well and the circulation is good, you're done. Basically, mm-hmm. that's all you have. That's what you're doing. People are complicated, though. So, <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah, it's. I would say, if you're talking about, um, you know, a healthcare practice, there was two things that have drove me in this work. And one is when I started way back in the '90s, and I started studying Chinese medicine. I loved it, but I recognized right away it wasn't physician level thinking. Mm-hmm. And I just spent years going through training, you know, physician level thinking is knowing the basic theories to construct approach to complexity. 
auxiliary pattern thinking is, you know, like there's, when you see a pattern, this is the treatment. And so I wasn't, I was upset about that. I didn't want it to be that way. And the other thing was, and I don't think it was that way originally, you know, in the Meiji, they were doing positional thinking for sure. And the other thing, when I was working as a Western doctor first, I love working with patients, but I get tired of looking at cholesterol numbers, mm-hmm. you know, and things. That was my, my day. Like, what's the lab results? How are we going to adjust the medication? Something like that. It wasn't beautiful. The reaction, the relationships with patients was beautiful. And so it's all, my work since then has also been this idea that the work should be beautiful. You know, then I went to Chinese medicine school and it was more beautiful, mm. but still we're talking about phlegm and kidney deficiency. And, you know, it's kind of a different version of that. And so when we look at the Neijing idea about transcendent illumination, a breathing universe, multidimensional experience, a resonance scape, the, the human body is a replication of those patterns. So in the way the human body is replicating the pattern of the universe, before you and you're intervening on that flow of light by doing acupuncture surgery that's just like a much more beautiful vision and also by the way it works like so much better (laughs) on the days we get it right we don't always get it right right, but when we do and the other thing is you can see the results so Mm -hmm. if you're if you're dealing with rivers and irrigation if you get it right you see the body change in front of you Ed, what are simple, practical um, practices that you either have used in yourself and your own work or that you might recommend to folks if they were interested in starting to cultivate the kind of perceptual awareness that facilitates being able to perceive I'm repeating myself in some funny ways in this question, but um, these kinds of dynamics and phenomenon that we've been talking about. So clearly, you know, one, there's a lot of study involved in this and I'm not so much asking about that because I think the, um, the informational aspect, you know, there's clear ways that one can do that in the main, but we're we're also talking a lot in this conversation about ways of seeing and ways of knowing that are not necessarily the norm, as you've pointed out, in the current cultural milieu that we are swimming within. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on, on that? Um, for perception, I would say the first thing is reestablishing our relationship to art mm. and creativity. So whether you're an artist or not, it doesn't really matter. Um, I had a high school teacher I loved, and one of the things he said, one of the biggest lies in the world is that there's some people who are artists and there's some people who are not artists. Mm. Because basically life is a creative event. But art is also a way of perceiving the world, of seeing things in a different way. And so whether you engage with art by being a, a participant in viewing art or even better, if you start to do something, it opens up a whole different way of your mind. If you look at, you know, paintings by Van Gogh or the Impressionists or whole Picasso, 
you will see like these ways that they're seeing one thing and they're seeing a different dimensionality of it, you know, and it's coming through their expression and it validates it. You know, um, if you study the traditions of, of traditional cultures, the writings and readings, that's another way because they're, they're doing that. And, um, you have to get out of the current story. That's a big problem. And the current story is passed to us primarily on screens now. So you really cannot, it's very hard to do this unless you re-navigate your relationship to screens. Mm. Because screens are basically bombarding you with stories constantly. Um, and it's And they're usually not true. They're often not true. And so you have to get really, you know, precise about the use of technology. Like I use technology to look up Chinese characters and do my work. And I read the New York Times once a day. That's about it. The other thing about screens is they change your temporal awareness. So if you want to like a very first piece of advice, if you want to participate in this breathing universe, is that you follow its rhythms. And that means... You know, this morning I woke up when the sun started to rise and I heard the chickens next door and the world's expanding and I wake up. In the end of the day, I get sleepy and I go to sleep and I become unconscious when the world becomes unconscious. And then I wake back up. You're kind of surfing and it is different in the summer, spring and winter, right? So Neijing's basic advice is to surf that, you know, like don't swim against it. Don't go to bed in the morning and work, you know, in the nighttime, surf with it, then nature is basically breathing you. And then if you go out in nature, that's even better. Because if you walk in a forest, now it's not just you breathing yourself, but it's like all these huge trees that are breathing with that rhythm. And when you walk in it, it resyncs your body. Mm-hmm. But the problem is when you're on screens, one of the main problems is there's no time sense. So if I'm looking at my phone at four in the morning, or five in the afternoon, if I'm staring at my screen, all of a sudden there's no cyclical time sense. Um, so that's that's just a huge one. I don't know what to do about that. Um, but looking at your technology as a tool and really cutting it down is a good one. I also think all the stories, we live in kind of a, a terminal moraine of story fragments, meaning where it's where all the rocks fall down the mountains and gather, you know. And so if you go online and look around, it's just a series of fragmented stories that are often changing in front of your eyes. And I think it also gives people a deep-seated anxiety about because they don't know what story to hang their hat on. Mm. And they're always trying to navigate, which story should I be, you know, attached to? And so we have to reconstruct our human stories. And that means going back to nature because that's where nature is designed. That's where all the patterns come from. I think that's sage advice. What do you say, Darren? I'm just wondering about um, sort of the a level even more practical, right? So that we've talked a lot about the reorientations and relationships to uh, environmental factors and, and kind of modes of thinking. And I'm wondering if there are, um, if there's methodology for training palpatory perception or clinical perception like as well so like that's an awesome answer and i think my question was maybe a little 
simpler and more naive, like, you know, what could somebody do if they wanted to start to, to shift their awareness, practically speaking, so that these dynamics we're talking about, which I think for many people might seem a little bit esoteric or foreign, though I don't think that they actually are. Um, you know, I have my ideas about what one might do, but I'm curious to know if you have things that you either have found effective with yourself or that um, you've seen help students you know, yeah. or even non-students, but people that are like, wow, that's cool. I would love to be able to start to tune in to these dynamics of, mm. of experience. Um, so that's, you know. I mean, uh, one, one thing is if you spend time in nature, it'll reset your experience and your perceptive, you know, mm -hmm. ability. it'll just do it. Mm -hmm. And then also it's something we have to teach. You know, I have to teach it to students because acupuncture, it's done on different dimensional levels. It's always been portrayed that way originally. And so you can't just approach it from the form-based, you know, model. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I went, I went to energy healing school for four years and practiced this like ad nauseum, you know, forever. And it was taught there in kind of a complicated way where you learn new skills and had to do these. And what I found is, is that when students come for training, I can short circuit that and it's actually very simple and it's, it's basically <laughs> it requires a teacher telling them they should do it. It's actually almost that simple. So for example, we have an exercise in our practicums where, you know, I just tell them, you know, like feel the skin and imagine what you're feeling in the skin, go to the next level. What do you see there? And by having a teacher or someone in authority telling them that that's actually what you're supposed to do. Like they just do it. Mm. Like I've, I've taught so many and then they'll tell you, they'll, they'll tell you all these interesting things about the findings and, you know, for, and they kind of do it right away. If you ask them in the right tone of voice. Um, and that goes back to the idea that actually this is the way we're used to dealing with the world and we're actually really good at it. But what it requires is, and, and it does help that I have MD after my name. Let's not forget that. If a, doc, if a doctor gets up there and says, this is important, that's like half the battle, honestly. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a matter of practice. Mm. That's all. Um, so you can take a class. If you wanted to take an introductory cranial or visceral class, you can do that. Not so much for the technique, because um, the teacher's very, a lot in quality there, but in the way that you listen with your hands and you feel that in a weekend, you know, I remember one of the things that started me off on alternative medicine way back in the beginning was I had, I was a medical student and I had a, um, a rotation with an old orthopedic surgeon and he was very experienced. He'd been the head of the orthopedic department at Highland hospital in Oakland and when he used to scrub his hands for surgery, there was a window and there was a chiropractor across the street and he would walk, walk people, watch people limp in and then walk out as he was like washing his hands. And he was like, this is really interesting. He ended up quitting his practice completely and going over to a cranial method and, and a manipulation mm -hmm. model. And I still remember going to his office and feeling the cranial wave for the first time. You know, like he said, can you feel that? And I was like, holy Jesus, that is moving like that. And I, it really struck me that I had just been through medical school and it was in the sacrum, 
person's sacrum. And I had never been taught about this motion. Mm-hmm. And not only that, I was taught that the sacrum was fused and it doesn't move. Right. Just like all those bones of the cranium. Right. Mm-hmm. And I came out of that day and I was like, wow, if there's something like this that I have no idea what it is and it's there, what else is there? Mm-hmm. But it's that way. As soon as you go into that listening space in, in cranial abyssal work, you're going into a different dimensional space. In a way, you're going into a different listening space. You could call the different dimensions different listening spaces. Mm, I like mm. that a lot. And, you know, for the acupuncture that I'm teaching, there's three main dimensional spaces that we move in and out of. And they, you start at a beginning level and you go higher. So the beginning one is what the tissue feels like just on palpation. You know, what the rivers are doing. Um, The second one is how the tissue is breathing. So that's a whole different listening space. You can go to the liver or the bones, any place. They all should be moving. Are they moving? And so you learn how to go into that listening space. And how do you do it? By doing it over and over again. And then when you want to listen, you just go into how it feels in your body. And then that's where you are. And then the third one is the Shen space where everything in the world first arose around a pattern of light. Now that's a little more tricky. It's a little more esoteric, but if you practice going there and meditating, like if I ask you right now, if you could imagine everything in the world is actually an expression of light, what would that look like? You know? So first you start with a question. Could you go into a meditative state where our podcast, our computer, or the trees outside my window, they're actually emanations of light. And what would it be like if I was in that world, just like in the binding world? So you start by thinking about it and meditating about it. And then you go into the clinic and you ask the same question. Here's a problem on the person's back. What if I imagined, because imagination is usually the first step in this process, that there's lines of light flowing through here. Does it feel like they're flowing through this part? And if so, why not? And if I put the needle in here, does it feel like they're there now? And then you just repeat that over and over again. So then you're moving and you're moving in and out of these different listening spaces. Um, so it's actually the Shen state takes a little bit of work. I would say the breath state takes a, a weekend or two, you know, the palpatory state, you know, that's an art too, but it's more direct. But that, then again, if you're not doing that from the original textbooks of acupuncture, you're not practicing acupuncture because they say the most important thing are the, is that the universe is a breath and that Chen is the basis of all the treatments. Mm. And they also go on to say, you know, it's great to question the person and know how to take a pulse diagnosis and that's all pretty good. But when you get better, you just look at that. So Ed, this has been totally awesome and we really appreciate you taking the time to speak so thoroughly and deeply about these incredibly complex topics. I'm, I'm wondering if there are any kind of closing thoughts or questions you want to leave us and folks that are listening with? 
I mean, the main one that occupies my thinking these days is the existential threat we're living in right now. You know, our time is different than other times. Before we can act crazy, get in wars, do stupid things. Now we're deconstructing the stage upon which those things happen. So, um, and for me, it's not about the details, finding a better battery for an electric car. That's great, but that's not the deal. The deal is we're stuck in a story and we're kind of headed towards a cliff like Thelma and Louise in that movie where they're in the car. They don't have any other choice but to drive off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And the car is their story in a certain way. You can't get you can't get out of it. And when we look at these old ways of knowing, their biggest benefit is they allow us to tell a different story. And we need to learn how to tell stories um, differently in a desperate way right now Mm -hmm. so my advice is to stop thinking about the details and social media and start thinking about how do i retell a story and how do we retell a story as a global community and really it's kind of touch and go at the moment so i Mm -hmm. think this is this is really a serious issue but i have i have um i do have faith that for one thing nature is resilient and honestly if we die off nature's not even going to shrug you know it's just going to yeah. move on <laughs> that's one thing yeah. um and also we're using so little of our potential as human beings i mean we're using a fraction of our potential as human, as human beings right now there's so much better we can do mm-hmm. so that that keeps me hopeful but not a time to sleep through this it's time to get to work <laughs> right <laughs> That seems to be a common through line with these podcasts is that, you know, we got to do the work there. There's work to do. And we've laid out that framework of what that means. And it's time to get to work. The thing is, though, when you're, you can't get started in the work unless you retell the story. It's very hard. Mm. The story gets you at every, so I'm trying to write this book for the public called redefining, reexamining nature, retelling our human stories through nature's design. Mm. And it looks at the problems we're having through storytelling, basically. And how do you retell a story? Like the story I said that, you know, all your atoms come from the inside of a star and everything you drink just came from outer space. Those you're telling, you're taking things that are true and you're retelling them. And it's in the retelling that changes everything. And so we have to get, it's like in that manual of life you should have gotten. One of the chapters would about make good stories and if the stories aren't good, here's how you retell the story. Because that's when things change. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not in the details. Thanks, Ed. This has been awesome. We, yeah, thank we you, really Ed. appreciate it. I appreciate taking the thank time. Thank you.